0: Here and Now, the program featuring the news and interests of the African-American community. Here's your host, Sandra Bookman.
1: Coming up, how Children of Promise NYC is creating opportunities for young people whose parents are behind bars. Also have the new exhibit, shining a spotlight on early African-American history in the North. Rapper Styles P turning his focus on health and wellness in underserved communities. And 60s girl groups finally getting the credit they deserve. We're going to introduce you to the author of the new book, But Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? That's all ahead on Here and Now. Lyrical rapper Styles P, a member of the hip hop group The Locks, has a new message that begins and ends with health and wellness. Born David Stiles. Styles P co-owns a line of local juice bars, Juices for Life, with fellow Locks member Jada Kiss. Now the line was created to bring the benefits of fresh produce to underserved communities. And now his latest venture, Pharmacy for Life, is being called the first hip hop natural food store. Joining us today to tell us more, Styles P or as I should say, Mr. Styles P.
2: Thank you very much.
1: What a pleasure to meet you.
2: Pleasure is all mine, you thank you. You caused
1: quite the stir when you came into the studio. There are some you very people much. here today looking forward to meeting you. Love is love. Yeah. Yep, love is love. Love is love. So this health thing is more than a thing for you. It has yeah. been a way of life, at least for the last decade or so.
2: Yeah, a, mm-hmm. decade, a decade plus. Uh, uh, 2011 was when juices we opened our first juices for life location in the bronx uh my second one actually as you mentioned my partner um jada kiss is involved in my in our second location in yonkers uh but my two original partners with um juices for life shout out to um nye and um mm-hmm. leo we we just had a mission um the juice bar my one of my partners owned the juice bar prior to us opening juices for life mm-hmm. it was a uh, Fruits of Life and it was in Harlem. And um, from me going there, it would be like me and seven other people there. And I told them um, for how it changed my life. And but I lost weight. Uh, my eczema left, my cyanitis left. And I was just feeling good about myself. So I always told them I would push and promote. So every time I would do a meeting, uh, that's where I would be. Mm-hmm. And it was a time in my life where I was getting, getting in um, trouble. And I knew I was too smart to continuously get in trouble, yeah. so I switched up. Sometimes you have to switch up people, places, and things. So I was making sure to go there and hang out, just to be around people who were different than me. They
1: were healthy, it was, it was, a, it was a healthier yeah, it lifestyle. Was a, it
2: was only a few of us, so I made it my mission to say I'm gonna make more people aware of You know something that's right here Mm -hmm. and um, it was working at the time that was on 125th between Park and Madison so people from Yonkers the Bronx Harlem Brooklyn Mm -hmm. me doing an interview a meeting I would do everything out of there and um, that was his family business and he shut down and he called me one day and it's funny because I got. He forced me into it. He was like, "Nah, you. This is what you belong doing." Yeah. He's like, "You spread the word. You're knowledgeable, and you believe in the moment." So, we opened up uh, Juices for Life on Castle Hill in the and, Bronx. And now
1: you've got three locations. Five. five. Oh, five total.
2: Yeah, three in the Bronx. One in Yonkers, one in White Plains.
1: All right, yeah. so now you're taking this health thing to the next level, pharmacy for life. Talk yes. to me about that concept.
2: Well, my wife saw what we were, um, shout out to my beautiful wife, Ajra. She saw what, how the juice bar gained such momentum and people were gravitating to it. So she said, uh, why don't we be smart and introduce them to our medicine cabinet, mm-hmm. but also find a way to do the business where we're making the things that we take, also we should invest uh, our time, money and energy and, um, pro- you know, self-producing the things that we take, which happens to be um, black seed oil, oil of oregano, sea moss, sea moss with bladderwrack, elderberry and zinc, um, a blend of mushrooms, a blend of roots, blends of different herbs and minerals that mm-hmm. you could... Just take for preventative measures, because a lot of times people don't have, and especially in impoverished poverty neighborhoods, mm-hmm. neighborhoods that deal with poverty and um, people of color, it's either we don't have health insurance or we don't go to the doctor enough. So, how do you face and fight that? Well, mm-hmm. the answer is work on preventative measures. So yeah, and that's
1: the natural... That's the, the
2: natural way. Okay. To say, all right, let me watch what I'm putting in my body. As well I'm putting as well as what I'm doing to the outside of my body,
1: now, go ahead now, so is this venture you talked about some of the things that you take, so you've, yeah. you you feel like your your lifestyle your the state of your health is proof that what you're taking
3: yes,
2: me is, and plenty mm-hmm. of people before me like yeah. uh like I think we make a difference because we're involved in hip hop, mm-hmm. but before me, um rest in peace uh. Dick Gregory, rest in peace, Dr. Zevi, rest in peace, a whole bunch of people. I didn't invent fruits and veggies, and I, I didn't invent herbs <laughs> and minerals. But I think with our background and what we do for a living, we made sure to get to the message out to people that health is really for everybody, mm-hmm. because typically people think health is for, you know, uh, rich white people or tropical black people. And we were like, you know, it's so not like you got to be—you got to be, you, gotta be either a, you know, a Jamaican or from the islands, or you know, there was kind of stigmas to it. So we wanted to let people know you could be from whatever background, mm-hmm. you could be from anywhere. Health is literally for everyone.
1: Yeah, and, and you want to help make that available in communities yeah, that have been sure. underserved for up sure. to now. And, and so what's the plan for your first food store now? The first natural, hip-hop's first... Yeah, that's Pharmacy
2: food for Life. We have one okay. on 832 Scarsdale Avenue Scarsdale. in Scarsdale. We okay. have um, we had an online business for about five, six years, mm-hmm. and we decided to open up a brick and mortar for people, because some people don't have a credit card, some people don't want to wait on the shipping, yeah, um, and some people like to see see and meet the people who are actually serving their products so we decided to open up a brick and mortar and not only that most of our juice bars are in food deserts yeah all of the juice bars are in food not, deserts when we
1: say food desert we, we're talking about places that don't black have neighborhoods, to, black,
2: black yeah. neighborhoods uh latino neighborhoods where you usually see fast food and liquor stores on every block
1: yeah. and not enough access to fresh not at all and vegetable decent, yeah uh, you know. so
2: pharmacy for life we we as you grow and you get on a journey because of course we're gonna take care of our people because you know we're the, we're the number one we feel like on a targeted list when it comes to bad health but we decided to put pharmacy for life in Scarsdale which is one of the richest neighborhoods to also show our people when you have a dream, you set your mind on it. You shouldn't be placed in a box. And mm-hmm. also, rich people don't know what they're doing a lot of times when it comes to health, either. So we
1: <laughs> we we we're, all, to we're, we're, extent, we're, we're
2: here for them. They don't have <laughs> fast food and liquor stores on every corner.
1: But they have other health. But concerns they have
2: other health appreciate. concerns and issues. So we're we're here for everybody.
1: I, I know. I see that you know not only through your career, but also through your music career, but also in, in this current these current businesses. You were really focused on giving back. do yeah. you feel like that is the next um, next iteration for you as as a hip hop star that you're taking that 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 stardom, that that fame, that renown and using it for good
2: that's that's part of it. Mm-hmm. De- definitely a big part of it. I feel like more so as a not a hip hop star, but as mm-hmm. a human being, as that's. a growing, maturing man that is my my duty to say uh i've been blessed and fortunate enough to live a blessed and fortunate life uh it's my duty as a as a human having the information to be that messenger uh you know often you get you get put in a box of you're the first one to do it and let your ego take place but i'm not the first one to do it mm-hmm. there's been many who have, have done it before me and I feel like the message is supposed to be carried on because one thing with health is it like I said, when you know it's for everybody, you let your ego out of it and say, Let me just do the right thing and spread the message. I feel it's something I have to do for my people first and foremost, mm-hmm. but for all for for all people, because if you know, when you live a life you when it's all said and done, I wanna be able to say I did something that benefited humanity. Yeah. Like, and that's my, so yes, that is a big part of it, but it's also I'm, I'm a messenger.
1: Yeah. yeah. And before I let you go, I, I have instructed, I have to ask you, yes, you are building this little empire here. Mm-hmm. However, fans want to know, you're not giving up the No, my solo career, I (laughs)
2: am. My solo career, I'm gonna make my last solo album. But I'm from the group, The Locks. Yes. I'm not going anywhere as a (laughs) LOX member, and I make a lot of collaborative projects with other MCs. I'm not changing that up either. But I do need time to uh, Mm -hmm. be invested, invest my time more in the health field, and also the other creative things that I like to do. So. I have a documentary coming about my town and where I'm from, Yonkers. Mm -hmm. Um, I've wrote a fiction novel before called um, Invincible. So I'm looking to do more writing and get behind the cameras more and and be creative. So I need to make some time and make some room. And also, you got to always protect your own mind space.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
2: You know, mental wellness is uh, is, is big and we got to take care of ourselves.
1: So, I'm going to send folks to pharmacyforlife.com. That's yes. F A R M mm-hmm. A C Y forlife.com and yes. also mrdavidstyles.com. Yes. Uh, if you want to keep up with what uh, Styles P is doing these days in addition to uh, being a lyrical genius.
2: Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> you are building a, 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 a an empire ba- based on health. Yes. A terrific, fantastic idea. Thank you very idea. much. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you for being with us. It's great to meet you.
2: Pleasure's all mine.
1: We'll be right back. <laughs> Nearly 3 million children in the U.S. have a parent in prison. That's according to the National Library of Medicine. Parental incarceration can negatively affect a child's development. Children of Promise NYC strives to serve youth left behind when a parent is doing time. And joining us today is the founder and president, Sharon Content. So nice to see you again. Absolutely, good afternoon. and Thank you for the opportunity. You started this in 2009. Yes, it, I did. Has the need grown? Well, as we
4: embark on our 15th year anniversary, which is so surprising to mm-hmm. myself as well, The need has grown, especially post-COVID. We have seen the needs not only of our scholars, the families, and the community has increased. The increase not only from the incarcerated parent Mm -hmm. and those needs that are expressed and demonstrated by our scholars and our families daily, but also the needs, as I said, Mm post-COVID, they've now increased as well. That has now been inflicted on the organization. And how do we best serve our families? How do we best meet those needs? So definitely we've seen an
1: increase. Why was this something that you felt a cause that you needed to to take up, something that you needed to fight? Well, it started really, I was in the for-profit sector.
4: Mm -hmm. I worked in, in finance, worked on Wall Street. And while I was there, I recognized, okay, so while I enjoy the work, I love the work that I was doing, I didn't feel a passion, I didn't feel a commitment on a daily basis on what difference was I making. I was coming up to the 57th floor of Seven World Trade and I just didn't feel I was making a difference. And I left the for-profit sector, left corporate America, and wanted to make a difference, not quite sure how yet. And as I worked in youth development and working with young people, I recognized a target population that just wasn't served by society, children of incarcerated parents. It was just a group of young people that I felt society was ignoring and I wanted to provide services specifically for that population and their families.
1: And what, are you, what do you find, you say provide services, what are the needs for, for, those, for those young people? Well, at
4: Children of Promise NYC, it's a holistic approach. So while it's an after-school program providing many of those traditional after-school services, your recreation, your arts and crafts, your fun space to bring mm-hmm. young people after school, It's also holistic in that we're a very innovative model. We're in in mental health, Article 31, which is a mental health adolescent outpatient mental health clinic. Mm -hmm. So we're able to deal with the trauma, the stigma, and for so many of the young people, the secret of having a parent in prison. How do we best deal with that? And by infusing a mental health clinic Mm -hmm. with an after-school program, it allows us to have a safe space, but to able to deal with the issues, the challenges. And I said, for so many of our young people, the secret. You know, as, as grandma drops you off to school and she may say, because mom was arrested yesterday, mm-hmm. don't say anything. Yeah. Don't tell anyone that that mom was arrested or dad is in prison. So when a young person is dealing with that secret, how do we bring young people together to deal with those
1: issues together yeah. and understand that they're not alone? So they're carrying that stigma, even though it has little to do with that. Absolutely. They are carrying,
4: let's say, the burden or of of their parents' incarceration, but how do we bring them together to understand it's not their fault, their parent still loves them very much, Mm -hmm. and how do we bring them into this safe, fun space? Because for so many of our young people, before enrolling and becoming a part of Children of Promise, they thought they were the only one. Mm -hmm. They
1: thought they were the only one in their class that was dealing with parental incarceration. And how do um, children come to your attention? How do they become part of, of your family? Sure. Well... We, first of all, we are in communities that we know
4: are mostly impacted by incarceration. There's a, a concentration of incarceration in several communities across New York City. And Bedford-Stuyvesant, in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. South Bronx, the two locations in which we provide service are two of those communities. So we knew we wanted to be in boots on the ground. We wanted to be near where our families lived. And then we really, we collaborate and partner with so many of the other agencies that are serving mm-hmm. our communities, soup kitchens, shelters. And then we go, in, go into the schools. We really partner with schools that are able to identify that our children have an incarcerated parent. And then we go. I go into the prisons. I go in and be able to talk to the incarcerated parent, and then they call home and say, you know, I, I heard about an organization, yeah. Children of Promise, please enroll. So
1: I know you, 15 years, yes. you said, you've got to have some um, success stories, if sure. you will. Kids yeah. that you met, you know, early, in those early years who are now either in school, out of college whatever, anything that comes to mind just, and also what it makes you feel like when you see them knowing that you helped them through some of the most difficult years of their lives and, and, Absolutely. and look where they are now. Sure. I mean, as I think of so many of our success stories, and
4: these might be successes in young people that are able to, on a day-to-day, deal with the issues and the challenges, as we said, and being able to have a clinician, have mental health staff to be able, on a day-to-day, to be able to deal with so many of those, those situations that are difficult. So the success stories may be in young people that are graduating from high school, that are being able to go through their education and being able to, while those those issues and problems exist, but be able to deal with them proactively before they're incarcerated, or having to deal with the criminal justice system. Our success comes from young people that are not, a, not involved with the criminal justice yeah, system. don't get into absolutely yeah. and then we had one success just today one of our scholars who were, were as a scholar as a young person is now is now a father and he named his daughter promise oh my and goodness. that to me is a is another indication of the success and the impact that we had on this man's life yeah. that he has now after coming through Children of Promise and being a part of our organization, has actually named his child after us.
1: We're moving into the holiday season, and I yes. know that you guys have plenty of holiday f- uh, plans for your scholars. We do. And so talk to me a little bit about that.
4: The holidays can be a very difficult time, yeah. not only for the financial constraints, of not having a parent that might be incarcerated, but then also missing that parent, not having that parent as a part of Thanksgiving and Christmas and, and just the celebration of the holidays. So at Children of Promise, we really try to do our part to not only bring the families together, but then we are being having our Thanksgiving dinner that we have at Children of Promise as mm-hmm. well, inviting all of our families, prior participants are able to come by, and then we have a turkey distribution mm-hmm. that we're also giving all of our families and being able to provide them with a turkey. We've been fortunate to have sponsors, corporate, individuals, that really care about Children of Promise and the families and the communities that we serve. Yeah. And corporations that do their part. Individuals that say, okay, you know what? How can I make a difference in the lives of someone in this community? And have come by and really contributed in different
1: ways. Yeah, and that's really how you stay alive, too. The, 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 <laughs> the generous help of these, of these sponsors. Definitely. The sustainability of Children of Promise NYC as a many
4: nonprofit are from individuals and corporations that do their part, that take part and really say, how can I contribute? How can I make a difference and make an impact? And that might be from a monetary contribution, it might be volunteering and saying, I wanna come by and contribute my time. Mm -hmm. So definitely the contributions of individuals and corporations really do sustain organizations such as Children of Promise NYC.
1: And your website is cpnyc.org? Correct, cpnyc.org. Okay, and on the website we can find out more about the communities you serve, the services you offer, and how we can all be a part of helping you continue to do what you do. Definitely, you can visit our website. There's multiple ways in which an individual can take part and contribute, so absolutely visit our website. All right, uh, Ms. Connton, thank you so much for joining Thank you, it was again. a pleasure, it was a pleasure. And I take my hat off to you yeah. for, for making this 15 years of, of successfully changing young lives.
4: Thank you so much, it was a pleasure. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity this afternoon.
1: We'll be right back. Beehive hairdos, mini dresses, and sweet harmony, all part of the signature style of female singing groups of the 60s. We're talking about groups like the Supremes, the Vandellas, and the Shirelles. The new book, But Will You Love Me Tomorrow?, an oral history of the 60s girl groups, tells the stories behind these groups based on hundreds of interviews with artists who created an unforgettable musical movement changed the culture in a lot of ways and in all too many cases never really got the credit they deserved. Joining us today is co-author Laura Flam and Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and co-founding member of the Shirelles, Miss Beverly Lee. So nice to meet both of you this afternoon.
3: Blessings and love, thank you.
1: You're so sweet. That that voice, even the voice, sounds melodic, Miss Lee. Ah, to God be the glory. (laughs) Now, I'm not, but I'm not going to ask you to sing for us today. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that to you. Look, I want to start with you, Laura. What made you and your co-author believe this was uh, an important topic?
5: We. Um, are huge ha- fans of the music, in fact, we've been seeing a lot of the groups, leg- legacy groups for the 50s and 60s are still touring and we've mm-hmm. been seeing them for years and we love catching a girl group on the roster. And just through thinking about how much we love the music and mm-hmm. trying to do some research and find some information on the lives of the women in the girl groups, we realized that they were pretty underserved in terms of how much attention that they've gotten, movies, books, et cetera, for all that they've contributed to mm-hmm. culture.
1: And you're listening to her say that. Would you agree with her that it was about time you got your due? I totally
3: agree. They <laughs> are trying to uh, sweep our history under the rug, and they, they're not telling the history accurately. Um, the Shirelles, the facts speak for itself. Yeah. Um, we stood the test of time. Uh, we paved the way for a lot of the other female groups to come along, we sold a million records with We Still Love Me Tomorrow, mm-hmm. uh, actually a million, not 5,500 units like they do today. "Soldier Boy sold over 15 million copies. We were voted Best Female Group in Cashbox and Billboard for five years in a row. Um, we broke the racial barriers in mm-hmm. the South, we wrote our music, we came along when it was a male-dominated time, mm-hmm. and we showed them that we had voices too.
1: Yeah, you, ha- you had more than we voices. We took the bull by the horn. <laughs> I have to ask you, when we're talking about the Shirelles, one of the things I loved in the book was reading how you guys wrote the first song when, when, you, know, when you were gonna get a chance yes. to, to have somebody hear you and then maybe get signed, that you sat around and wrote that song. Wait, wait, and, and Tell me again what was, it was so, I met him on a two, I was like, what? Yes. The way that song got written, just tell that story for me. Well,
3: uh, we actually were performing Sunday Kind of Love, mm-hmm. Little Darling, and Walking Along and we decided we wanted to do another song, and we went to my apartment in the Sake, and we wrote, I met him on Sunday. One just started a line, we all fell in, and the harmonies just came together. It's like, to me, reading
1: that story, I laughed so hard, I was like, so that's how a hit gets made, right? But
3: you know what, we (laughs) were talking about what was happening with the kids dating, Mm -hmm. so they could relate to our music. Um, You could dance to it, it told stories. Uh, A lot of people fell in love with our music. We have a lot of young ladies named (laughs) Sherelle.
1: Yeah, that's a big constant. Like these days, I think there are a lot of, of young ladies probably naming their babies Beyonce or Taylor, right? Yes. Right? But the Shirelles were one of the first. I have to ask you, was it, Laura, was it easy or how easy or difficult was it? You interviewed like 300 hours of interviews. I mean, you're talking to everybody. I was reading through, I was like, that's Barry Gordy. That's Diana Ross. They talk to you. Um, and, of course, Miss Lee was, was all part of these conversations, too. How easy or difficult was it to get folks to talk to you about their memories of that period of time?
5: Well, well, there were a few people that we had to pull some some uh, extra sources in. <laughs> so, in, in all accuracy, Diana Ross, unfortunately, we did not get to speak to. Okay. Nor Barry Gordy. And a few people had but passed you, these, away. But these are... And we wanted to include their voices. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the people who are still here and with us... Uh, it was daunting to reach out to people, especially at first, yeah. but when we did start reaching out to people like Ms Lee, the women who are singers of the girl groups pretty much all across the board feel that they that their stories have not been told mm-hmm. and that they you know they walk into the grocery store every day and hear their songs mm-hmm. on the radio and everywhere, movies and so for the most part, people were pretty excited to tell their stories. Mm -hmm. And then some of the other people, like Whoopi Goldberg Mm -hmm. and Billy Joel and some of the more famous people that we spoke to for the book, when we reached out to them, their feeling was this is such important music, these are such important women, that I will be happy to take the time to do the interview, even though I'm a busy person.
1: So in all the stories, is there one or two that stick out to you that you just, it was so Mm -hmm. memorable to get that little Mm -hmm. nugget of information? I mean there are so many <laughs> nuggets of information and so
5: many so mm. many things that so many stories that we were excited to have people tell. Um, one thing that was very exciting for the Shirelles, for example, was that they participated in a very, very historical concert in nineteen sixty three. And that was another event that had been strangely underserved in history, even though it was such a big deal. And it was the Salute to Freedom concert yes. in Birmingham, Alabama. The Shaals were on. And so to be able to speak to the Shirelles and people like Johnny Mathis, who was another person who was excited to to speak for the book, yeah, was such an exciting thing. It's not not only was it a nugget, but it's part of history that has been preserved, but not preserved enough, and it it, it gave a chance to bring it back to life for a minute Ooh. and to talk to people like Beverly Lee, who <laughs> was hadn't actually really there, spoke, who was there and has an amazing perspective and hasn't really hadn't really had a chance, I don't think, to speak publicly about the event.
1: Yeah, and Miss reading about it, I knew nothing about that concert, and the concert, in fact, was used in part to fund some of the activities yes. around the march in and Washington, yeah, March
3: on Washington. As a matter of fact, I spoke with someone who said they were at an a African-American museum in Birmingham, Alabama, and they had no knowledge about the concert. Yeah. Um, I was very honored because while the Shirelles were performing, Dr. King was on stage with us. Yeah. Um, the money uh, that was raised for that show was for the people from Birmingham, and Alabama to come to the march in Washington. Mm-hmm. We also did one in Philadelphia. Um, in those days they didn't put our pictures on the albums in the South. There was a demand for us to come South, and we went South and blew their minds, they didn't expect the black young ladies to come in. And we went to Clemson, South Carolina. So we opened the doors for the other acts, the black acts to come into the South and play the colleges and stay in a lot of the hotels because you mm-hmm. could not stay in the hotels also. I was on stage when Johnny Mathis was performing and when the stage collapsed, I saw the whole thing. And. People didn't panic in the front, because you could tell what was happening. The yeah. light bulbs had overheated and exploded. They said some people, maybe in the back, they thought something happened. The Ku Klux Klan had marched before we got there. Mm-hmm. They had a chartered plane. We could not go up the premises of the hotel. Um, Dr. King led the um, cavalcade of uh, cars to the hotel. Mm-hmm. He took very good care of us. Yeah. So,
1: I, I, Ella, I've got so many questions for you. One of them. What does it mean to you? You're telling your story, you know, being part of this girl group, but you are also a part of history and really an important part of of some changes. I grew up in the South, so I I know Mm -hmm. what you're talking about. People not actually knowing what you look like, they only heard your voice, and then they saw who you were, right. not being able to go in hotels, that kind of thing you're performing you can't even stay where you're performing. What does it mean to you when you look back on that times to have been a part of history? you know you talked about it in the book, you mentioned um, in one of the conversations, the interviews, you later saw a photo, and Dr. King was in the photo, and you were that still excited you
3: I was just overwhelmed yeah it's quite an honor um to know that you're performing for people, that they love your music, and you cannot stay in a hotel, you cannot go to their college, you know, it's mind-blasting. Yeah,
1: yeah it's pretty mind-boggling even when you look at the pictures now that say, you know, white only or colored fountain only right. or what have you. My second question for you. What does it mean to you to have your story and your remembrances of that time and your contribution to the uh, music industry finally recognized in in this book and really corroborated by many of the other people that were interviewed?
3: Well, I'd say thank you, Laura, because uh, she captured uh, our stories. She did not change them. She let us all tell our side of the story. She didn't say, you know, this is wrong or that's not right. We we're able to tell what actually happened to us because people have a way of turning your words around. Mm-hmm. I know that um, I've, I've written a book and I will be setting a lot of facts straight. Okay. So um, a lot that I've told Laura is in her book, but there's so much more in my book.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I, I do want to mention to the viewers, one of the things I loved about your book, too, you guys made a conscious, dist- uh, conscious choice To really, it's sort of a, it's just these are the actual conversations that were had with people. It's what they said. It's not your writing or your reflections. You used the the conversation, what they said to you. Why did you decide to do it that way?
5: So my co-author Emily Lebowitz and I strongly felt that we did not want to interfere in the story, become part of the story, Mm -hmm. we didn't want our own opinions of you know, we hear, we hear so many sides of stories. We didn't want our own opinions to be opinions. We just wanted to gather as much information yes. in people's own words, capturing their own spirits, how they talk, how they chose to tell their own stories and just create a space for it. And, you know, the, the oral history format is so wonderful mm-hmm. for that. And also to weave it together into a narrative that was fast-moving and fun enough that it would engage, engage readers to read so much History, you know, there's so much fun stuff, and there's so much friendship and love, and there are so many terrible stories of yes.
1: groups not getting um, the money they deserve. Yeah, recognition thinking you had money waiting for
3: you, not having the money waiting for you. Yes, we were told that there was a trust fund for us when we turned 21. We turned 21, and that's about the money. And we were told the money was stolen.
1: Yeah. So I mean, this happened. Maybe not the same exact story, but this was happening
3: absolutely uh, over
1: yes. and over and do you think uh g- girl groups uh, females were particularly vulnerable to this
3: yes because some of the guys would stand up for themselves as a matter of fact mm-hmm. they were very shrewd the agents would get a deposit for your money for the show and then they would send you the balance of your money after the show was over you pick up part of your money the half of your money there they would try to hold on to the money and some of the guys would go to the uh, office and the, man, the money, I know of one that got on the desk and, you know, told the agent what he was going to do if he <laughs> if didn't he give didn't him get his, his money, money. and you, you had to go to that point. Yeah.
1: It's just a fascinating read, and I have to tell you I love all the gossipy things behind the scenes. You're talking about Diana Ross, and I'm not saying you are, but it was just interesting. I I thought it was great, and it was getting it in their own words. I absolutely love this book, and I want to say the title right, But Will You Love Me Tomorrow? An Oral History of the Sixties Girl Groups, and it is juicy, it's entertaining. Um, it's really wonderful and thank you so much Miss Lee for coming this afternoon to talk it's to pleasure. us. my pleasure.
3: You know Diana Ross sat behind me on the bus on the tour and <laughs> Dick Clark would go and get our food for us when mm-hmm. we couldn't go into the restaurants.
1: Yeah. And that, I just all of that stuff you talk about and you remember those stories, I, I I love it. I really loved it. And anybody that loves that music, they are gonna love this book too. Thank you both for being with us this afternoon. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having and us. And I can't wait to read your book. Oh, oh me neither. <laughs> I'm waiting for <laughs> that one too. All right, we will be right back. A new exhibit challenges the conventional narratives that have minimized African American history in the North since the 17th century. Unnamed figures, black presence and absence in the early American North includes more than 100 artifacts and some of these reveal little known stories. Joining us today are co-curators at the American Folk Art Museum, Sade Ayurinde and Emily Givolt. Thank you both for being with us this afternoon. Thank you. you. It's just, I love the fact that you guys are just down the street from us. So we get to walk by all the time and see the wonderful things you have there. This exhibit, uh, just an interesting name. How did, so how did the idea of it come about?
6: Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, this is a project that's been many years in the making. Um, actually, the, f- the first object that um, really uh, inspired, or a group of objects that really inspired the project is a suite of landscape paintings <laughs> Um, that we'll have on view in the show, uh, depicting a plantation just outside of Baltimore in the late 18th century. And these are pictures that were originally intended to really uh, emphasize the prestige and power of a wealthy white family. Um, But these are pictures that also depict black people who lived within that same landscape and within that same plantation home. Um, And the narrative around the pictures has traditionally emphasized the white family members, Mm -hmm. we know them all by name, but looking at these works, you immediately say, you know, well, what about all of the different black figures who are shown here? Mm -hmm. Um, Something in in particular that's been interesting about it is to study the long history of the object's ownership, and one of them actually descended in the family of of some formerly enslaved residents of this plantation. So mm-hmm. what does a picture mean when we think about who's looking at it um, and uh, start to kind of question the traditional interpretation that has only talked about the white folks who are part of this painting?
1: Yeah, and, and did you, did, so you're looking at this, this work, and do you find the same thing in other works? Is that what makes you say, you know what? This needs to be a bigger conversation
0: Absolutely, yes, yeah, I mean, we were able to collect um, so many objects that are kind of doing the same thing. They're showing, um, you know, black figures, if they're showing them at all, Mm -hmm. which Emily had just said, like literally they often are just completely left out of the picture. But if they're showing them at all, they're showing them in relationship to to whiteness as sort of an accessory or they're minimized or they're off in the corner in some way. And so we were able to actually gather quite a few works um, of art to, to demonstrate. This, this general idea and try to unpack what can happen if you decide to focus on the black figure and think about the lives and the histories of, of the black residents in the North, um, as opposed to just focusing on the, the white um, families and the white stories.
1: And what that does, if you start doing that, is it sort of changes the conversation around, you know, who owned slaves, who owned people, um, where where were there were black people in the north, whether they were all enslaved or not, that's another conversation, but it does change the way a lot of us have even learned American history. Absolutely. And and so why do you think it's so important to, you know, have this conversation to say, take a look at this and 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 how does that add to to the American story? Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I think um, for
6: me, a personal example that keeps coming up is um, a handmade doll made around actually the time of the Civil War in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is the town I grew up in, and um, there are complicated elements to this doll. It's, it was made by a white girl, and it it, it has. Um, a kind of uh, inflection of racist visual vocabulary that was being constructed at the time, but we know from research that it was intended as a tribute, as kind of a memorial portrait of this man, Darby Vassal. Mm-hmm. Darby Vassal. Um, uh, there's a, a, a street in Cambridge called Vassal Lane where I went to school, mm-hmm. named after the men, uh, the people who enslaved this man. There's a, um, a house museum now where Darby Vassal and his family lived. Mm-hmm. Darby Vassal's buried in a church just outside of Harvard Square. All. All of these places were familiar to me growing up, mm-hmm. and yet I never heard his name. You never knew the story, and I never knew the story. And I think that's a shameful state of affairs that, unfortunately, has been repeated for so many, um, you know, young young kids, and is happening in this country um, even now. And so the idea is, uh, let's let's try to. Um, you know, all the historians have been doing this work mm. for a long time, how do we reinforce through the, the yeah. mnemonic of the visual mm-hmm. um, so that this really hits home with, with uh, a ge- as a general common understanding.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's been a really important opportunity to just really think about, as you were saying, slavery in the North, because um, a lot of the history, a lot of the scholarship, and just a lot of what people seem to know or believe or understand mm-hmm. um, might suggest that slavery didn't exist in the North. It's really seen as like a Southern problem. Yeah. Um, and so we really wanted to shine a light on the fact that, in fact, there were Um, people enslaved in the north to turn our attention to this other region and um, focus on New England and the Mid-Atlantic because I mean, people who were enslaved were a huge part of the economy in in the North, from, you know, people working in maritime labor in Massachusetts or working on farms in Pennsylvania, and then also people working, um, you know, as domestic laborers as well. Um, And so the show highlights all of those aspects.
1: And it gives us a a more complete uh, picture of American history. Instead of just sort of one-sided, well, it was just in the South, and it was just here, or it was, it, we just, I think we need a fuller, more accurate picture. And obviously this isn't the only uh, area of our history that we probably need to to do that, but this certainly helps. Um, talk to me a little bit about some of the artifacts that you're featuring in the show, because I know you, you pulled, we were able to pull things from, from lots of resources. Um, and how do you go about grouping them? Because I, I, I love that one of the things you say, the... The, the unnamed figures is so interesting to me. The fact that you can take a painting that people have been, that you know people have been left out of in a way that they should be there. Talk to me a little bit about some of those artifacts and, and what you're hoping that they're gonna illustrate in the mm-hmm, show.
6: Mm-hmm. Well, one example that um, is actually from the American Folk Art Museum's own collections mm-hmm. is a landscape showing the harbor of a small town called Duxbury, Massachusetts. Um, And again, it's been talked about over time in terms of the white man for whom this painting was made. It shows his property. uh, But it's also a painting that is full of visual cues to the economic history that was entangled with the slave trade and what we call the triangular trade, so the trading of goods and commodities that facilitated um, uh, uh, societies um, that were based around slavery and the buying and selling of enslaved people. This is a painting that I think, you know, again, when we ask different questions of it, it reveals some of these untold stories. And in fact, although this hasn't been the focus of its interpretation in the past, there is a black woman in this picture. Mm -hmm. She's a small figure turned enigmatically away from the viewer, um, but she's there, and probably a free woman of color at this time in Massachusetts
0: in the 1790s. Um, that's one example. Um, There's, yeah, I mean, what was so fun, I think, about this exhibition is that we got to touch on so many different vernacular forms. So we have sculpture and we have portraiture and photography mm-hmm. and um, needlework. Needlework, yeah. Um, so, one really, I think, powerful piece of needlework in the show is actually an autobiographical work by a Connecticut woman um, that was made around the time of the Revolution, and um, it depicts sort of these scenes of her life through from di- birth to death, and it includes this black woman figure in the corner, and she's sort of um, tending to the, the, the baby that would have been this woman as a baby. and. Um, it's really interesting to see the, the fact that she's there at all, because mm-hmm. clearly that means that she was really an important part of, family. of the family mm-hmm. and um, of the upkeep of, of the house and of, of, of the children, but also the fact that she's in the corner this way um, and the way that she, her sort of face is is rendered is just you know black and then white, stitching where her mouth and eyes would be. And um, it continues to show that same trope of um, The ways that blacks were sort of marginalized in these disappearing into the woodwork. Exactly. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay,
6: that's a really interesting example in particular because Mm -hmm. we actually do have a possible name for this woman. Yes. um, Because often
1: is this one of the shocking things that you found? No,
6: (laughs) it's actually not. uh, This is not actually research that that we did ourselves, Uh but there a historian did this research. But um, again, because of the white archive, because of documents around a white family, Mm -hmm. we know that there was a woman named Jane or Jenny Cato enslaved by the, yes. the family of this needleworker, and we know a little bit about her story so to kind of contemplate that in juxtaposition to this image I think just makes it that much more powerful you can think you know this is a woman who uh, who lived out her life as a free woman in Connecticut she yes. married twice she left a will, will. Mm-hmm. Yes. In which she which chooses great. who she's you know leaving her property to and yes. she asserts her identity. Yeah, her name.
1: Her name. And And it's a story that
0: deserves to be told. Absolutely. yeah. yeah. And one that you wouldn't know if you're just looking at an image like that in terms of the woman who made it.
1: And the other thing, you guys have a 300-page scholarly book that's going to be published to coincide with the exhibition. Talk to me a little bit about that. So this is a chance for the hard work that you've done to live on well beyond. I mean, and not just to work, because obviously you didn't do the paintings and everything, but to, to pull it all together and to explain to people why it's important, what you're looking at, and what you're seeing but not seeing and so to understand I mean I think that's just important talk to me a little bit about that that the book
0: oh yeah that was that was great <laughs> that was so great we we decided early on that we didn't want to do just like a traditional catalog we really mm-hmm. wanted to highlight the voices of a range of different scholars because again there's so much to do here and interdisciplinarily in terms of you know art history, but then also history of you know material culture studies, visual culture studies, and so we wanted to be able to have all of those voices come together in one in one project. So there are twelve authors, mm-hmm. um, and they're coming from a range of different um, arts institutions and um, universities, and I think um, you know we're able to dig into a lot of different expertise that like we didn't necessarily have. And mm-hmm. so I think, um, and the book is is beautiful, beautifully illustrated, I think it's gonna be a really great addition to, to the show for people to continue to learn about these objects in more depth.
1: Yeah, and I know the two of you sort of have uh, different uh, areas of expertise. Yes. So maybe you both have a slightly different hope for what you want people to um, get from the show? How do you hope that, you know, visitors will react? What do you think that, what do you want them to to walk away with? That's a great question. I
6: think together with our co-curator R.L. Watson, who's an assistant professor of African American Studies, um, I think we're really well aligned on what we hope folks will come away from the show with. We do come from different backgrounds, and that was intentional. We wanted Mm -hmm. to um, be able to bring different kinds of expertise to the project, so I'm really a a scholar of 18th century new england sade works on much more contemporary material yes and rl is literary yes And we're both art historians rl's coming to it from another uh, perspective but i think um, i can say that all three of us are very much hoping that folks in the broadest sense will come away from the exhibition Um, with a bit more of a habit to look with a critical eye, so not just to kind of accept. You know, I think oftentimes people come into a museum with this expectation, okay, I'm here, the curators are the voice of authority, they're going to bestow facts upon me and I'm going to come away having learned that. We're actually asking for our visitors to do a bit more work than that and to really play an active role in looking and unpacking what they're looking at. So things like questioning even the most basic information, Mm -hmm. there's a title, here who came up with that title you know most 18th century objects weren't given titles by artists necessarily or Mm -hmm. certainly in the kind of vernacular art world Mm -hmm. so these are pieces of information that get layered on from someone's perspective at a later time and guess whose perspective that usually was a white person Mm -hmm. if not a white man and so we have to ask that question um, continually so that's that's really the um, underlying gesture of the show is to get folks
1: thinking critically so, the exhibit is Unnamed Figures, Black Presence and Absence in the Early American North and it runs November 15th, 2023 to March 24th, 2024. That's correct, right? Yes. Yep. And I can send folks to folkartmuseum.org yeah, absolutely. to find out the times and anything else they yes. want to know. And you talked about the book. Uh, is that going to be available there? Is it something that can be ordered?
6: Both. Yes. You like
1: both. You can
6: can pick up a copy in our shop or you can order it online from
1: our shop. All right. Thank you both for being with us this afternoon. It's really interesting. And also, we just all need to think a little bit, look with the critical eye and think a little bit deeper about who we are, where we come from. Right? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Thank you for joining us on Here and Now. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can watch at abc7ny.com. If you'd like to comment or share your story, email us at abc7ny or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and X. I'm Sandra Bookman. Enjoy the rest of your day.